You know, whether you're a, a famous rock star like Brian Welch or just an average guy like me, uh, there's one thing we all have to admit, and that is the problem of pain and suffering is a problem for everybody, isn't it? No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you do, no matter what you believe, facing trials of various kinds, you know, is part of the human experience. It's, um, it's a fact of life in a broken world. And um, in a letter he wrote to the first century church, the apostle Peter acknowledges that. He readily acknowledges that. At the time of its writing, Christians were suffering intense persecution. They were the tragic victims of the injustice and ferocity of one man, Nero, the emperor of Rome. And uh, because of what was happening to them, the, the, the pain and the brutality, uh, Peter makes suffering a major theme in his letter. He talks about it in all five chapters. And yet, as we saw last week, before he addresses it directly, Peter notes how these, these early followers of Jesus were greatly rejoicing, even while suffering grief and all kinds of trials, which sounds really strange, right? It, it begs the question, is that really possible? You know, can joy and suffering coexist can they be experienced simultaneously in life? And the Apostle Peter says, yes. Because for us as Christians, joy is more than circumstance. Joy transcends circumstance and flows out of, an understood, uh, out of understood spiritual realities. Namely, that we've been given a new birth into a living hope, adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. As such, we have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven and divine protection. And when trials enter our lives, and they will, we understand that they're temporary and uh, serve to prove and refine uh, our faith. And ultimately, we know that because of Jesus, we are eternally rescued. Or to put it more succinctly, we can rejoice in all circumstances because the reality of God's truth and his promises far exceed anything this world has to offer, pleasurable or painful, good or or bad. Now I invite you to open your Bibles with me to this letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and, and if you have missed uh, the first two messages in this series, I really encourage you to go online, download them, listen to them when you can. Uh, they're important to hear because they set the stage for everything else Peter writes in the letter. But um, this morning I want, to, I want to revisit something Peter said in the section we looked at last Sunday because well, we sort of brushed over it, and it deserves attention because it represents the foundation of Christian faith. Um, what am I talking about? Well, at one point early in the letter, for the sake of his listeners, for the sake of those in the church, Peter reemphasizes what it means to be a Christian. Um, you know, what it is that makes the gospel, you know, the good news of Jesus so good. If you remember, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he writes to the church, he says, you believe in Jesus and you're filled with joy because you're receiving the end result of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in verse 10, he immediately writes this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke to you of the grace that was to come to you, and I want to stop right there. I want us to focus on that last phrase, the grace that was to come to you, and here's why. You know, we live today in a culture where over 90% of our people, 90% of Americans say they believe in God. Why so many? Uh, I think the answer is simple. As human beings, we are by nature incorrigibly religious. In fact, philosophers and, and uh, sociologists of the 19th century, early 19th century, used to predict that by the late 20th century, or at the very least the 21st century, religious belief would decline and uh, be a non-factor in the world. 
But today, the experts all agree and admit they were wrong. That religion is as much a factor in human history right now as it's ever been. I mean, even within our own secularized American culture, there remains this widespread undercurrent of belief. And I'll tell you, after 25 years of ministry, what I have observed and what I've concluded is that most of the men, the women, and the students who believe in God and who either walk away from Christianity or just reject it, you know, outright, they do so thinking they know what it is and what it means, but really don't. In fact, I would go so far to suggest that there are instances where even for some in the church, you know, we get mixed up on it and we forget what it is and what it means and need to be reminded so that together we can experience and celebrate with joy and go out and share the joy uh, with others. And so with that in mind, here's the question. What does it mean to be a Christian? There are some typical views on that, uh, on that issue. Uh, for example, the first is what you might call the intellectual view. Some people see Christianity primarily as a set of theological tenets, arguments, um, doctrinal beliefs that you, you ascribe to. You know, for them, it's mostly a cognitive deal. Uh, maybe you go to a class, you finish a, finish a curriculum, you take a test, you sign a statement of faith, and you're good to go. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to a person who says to me, you know, I've always been a Christian all my life. I've always been a Christian. And in some cases, not in all cases, but in some of those cases, what that person is really saying is that they were raised with a certain set of beliefs and values that they have never given up on or never rejected. The second view of Christianity is the behavioral view that says, hey, you know what, doctrine is important but, and it has its place, but being a Christian is mostly about what you do. It's about being a good person. It's about being a moral person. It's about helping others. No lying, no cheating, no, no, no stealing, no murdering, and all the rest. And then there's the, uh, the third view is the mystical view that says, as a Christian, you, you have to have some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of sort of hard-to-describe encounter with God that changes you in deep, meaningful, and undeniable ways. Now, think about those for a minute. And tell me, is Christianity intellectual? Sure it is. Does, does it impact behavior? Absolutely. And is it some way, in some ways a, a mystical experience that you have with God in, in terms of relationship and, and God in your life? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would, I, I'm pretty sure the Apostle Peter would look at this list here and he would agree uh, with all of those as far as they go. But see, none of them go far enough. None of them fully describe the good news of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. Because at its core, Christianity is more is more than, than just about our, our human intellect. It's, 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 not, it's not about our human intellect. It's not about our behavior. It's not about our experience. And so Peter, for the sake of the church, he returns to the basics here and summarizes it this way, that at its very core, the good, good news of Jesus, the salvation of your souls, faith, this being a Christian is about, as he says, grace come to you. Grace come to you. And as I see it, this one, this one phrase, as simple as it sounds, reveals an awful lot, uh, an awful lot of truth. For example, it tells us that Christianity is not about you and me getting ourselves to God, but it's about God coming to us. How out of love, he has, he has taken the initiative. He has graciously, intentionally moved in our direction. 
In fact, if you notice, Peter reminds his listeners how the ancient prophets, how they, he says they spoke of the grace that was to come to you, how through the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. In short, grace through Jesus. Now, if you've been around Parkview for any length of time, you know that uh, I like to periodically um, describe some of the similarities and some of the differences between religions. And just for the record, I don't do that to criticize religion in general. I do it for the sake of comparison. Because I hear people say things like, you know, all religions are the same. And what that really means is that person doesn't know much about world religions, or at least not as much as they think they do, because it's just not true. There may be some vague similarities, but look, they are not the same. There are massive differences, massive differences. And again, that's not a criticism, it's just a fact. Take, for example, this whole idea of salvation, the salvation of your souls, right? In Hinduism, salvation is about breaking out of the cycle of reincarnation, where you're born over and over and over again. Maybe you're a human, next time you're a bug, or then you're a dog, whatever. You're earning your way up to uh, you know, getting better and better as you go, but getting released from the cycle, which is the goal, being and being absorbed into what is known as this universal consciousness of eternal peace and tranquility. How does that release happen? Well, in Hinduism, Hinduism, it happens through devotion to one's caste, uh, through the knowledge of and adherence to Hindu writings, being a better person, by keeping uh, one of a million gods happy through ritual and sacrifice. In other words, it's about human effort. It's about what you do. In Buddhism, which is really more a philosophy than a religion, the goal is to attain total, total enlightenment or nirvana. The word nirvana literally means to blow out like you blow out a candle, the flame of a candle. The idea is that our need is to blow out, to extinguish, to eliminate our human desires because Buddhism says those are the cause of our suffering. We gotta get rid of them. Well, how do you get rid of them? By following the eightfold pathway, the way of right understanding, the way of right aim, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right achievement, uh, I mean, right uh, mindfulness and concentration. That was eight, right? Uh, the eightfold pathway. Again, it's, a, it's about your, your performance, your achievement. It's about what you do. Uh, Islam is about total submission to Allah. And the, Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. And this submission, it dictates what you eat, what you wear, when and how you pray, how much you give to the poor, and the need to get to Mecca at some point or another. And all of these things are very, very important because on Judgment Day, if a Muslim's good works outweigh his bad ones, all his sins may be forgiven. May, he may be allowed into paradise. There's no guarantee. But there's a possibility of that happening. It's about what you do and about how good you do it. Now, granted, that's a rather simplistic summary of three major world religions, right? And there are some more, but, but here's the point. Every religion says that salvation, however they define it, starts with you. It's about, it, it all centers on you, on your human performance, on, on your goodness, your effort, your achievement. That is not what Christianity says. It's not about the good you do to get to heaven. Christianity is essentially the, uh, the report on what God has done. That's why it's called the gospel which literally means good news. And news, by definition, is a report on what's been done. It demands we recognize that something has indeed happened and it prompts us to, to um, respond to that reality in one way or another. And Peter says, grace has come to you. 
That's the good news. It's what, ma- it's what makes Christianity different from other world religions. And we, we in the church, we of all people, should recognize that, understand it, and be able to articulate that difference. I came across a book recently by a guy, guy named Alain de Baton, who's an atheist, and he's written this book entitled Religion for Atheists. Uh, the subtitle is A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion. And I, find, I always find it fascinating how atheists tend to be obsessed writing about religion or about God who they don't believe exists in the first place. But this guy's a little different in that he doesn't slam faith, he doesn't slam religion. Actually, he's, he, at, t- at times he's quite positive about it. He, he writes this, attempting to prove the non-existence of God can be an entertaining activity for many atheists. And though this exercise has its satisfactions, the real issue isn't whether or not God exists or whether God exists or not, but where to take the argument once one decides. The premise of this book is that it's possible to remain a committed atheist and nevertheless find religions sporadically useful, interesting, and consoling. And so in short, Bhutan goes on to affirm uh, some of the cultural benefits of religion, especially in terms of fostering community between human beings. And I appreciate that. But still, the underlying message of his book is that all religions are essentially the same. They're essentially wrong. And um, they're not all wrong, neither are they all the same. Uh, take, let's take another topic, for example. Let's take the topic of sin. Uh, all other religions are what you would, could say, they are, they are moderately pessimistic and moderately optimistic. In other words, most concede that that man has a problem, a pretty serious problem with himself, with others, and with God. Uh, And all of them agree that contained within each of us is the potential to overcome that problem. If we just work hard enough, if we perform well enough, and uh, and if we if we if 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 we you know and if we do then we can maybe make it to heaven nirvana paradise enlightenment or whatever. But within all these religious systems, optimism has its limits. Because you can never, you can never know for sure when enough is enough. So you just, you know, you try hard, you, you, you know, hope for the best. But with Christianity, there is no moderation. Christianity is thoroughly pessimistic and thoroughly optimistic at the same time. Because the message of Jesus involves both bad news and good news. The bad news, we are so, as human beings, we are so broken and messed up and rebellious by nature. We can never be good enough to reach the, the perfect standard of a, holy, of a holy God. The good news is that we don't have to. Grace has come to us. Jesus has come and done the work for us. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. And it is his performance, his achievement, his work on the cross that solves our problem and purifies us from our sin. Which is why, unlike other religions, with Christianity, optimism turns into confidence and eternal security, which brings about a genuine sense of joy in all circumstances, which is exactly what Peter's talking about in his letter. See, what it comes down to is this. Our eternal relationship with God, the salvation of our souls, rests either on human effort or God's initiative. Which is it? Works or grace? Those are the options. You have to decide. 
mean, think about all the things that Peter has, has mentioned already in the letter. He's mentioned our new birth. He's mentioned living hope. He's legend, mentioned this guaranteed inheritance in heaven, divine protection, eternal rescue. And then here in verse 10, he takes this, this profound truth of salvation and all that it represents, and he boils it down to one word, grace. And grace means what? Unmerited favor. That's how it's usually defined. And that sounds really good. But I was wondering this week if perhaps we fail to grasp, you know, the full, the full nuance of the word. Because in scripture, grace doesn't simply mean granting favor to someone to whom you owe nothing. It's really more than that. Grace means granting favor to someone to whom you owe the opposite. Let me, let me explain it this way. Imagine you jump on the train, you head downtown Chicago. And you're walking through, you're walking down the, through the through uh, the city, and, and someone in need comes up to you. Maybe maybe they've lost their job, maybe they're homeless, whatever. They, that person comes up to you and, and asks for help, and and so you give them a couple bucks. You don't you don't you're not obligated to do that. You don't owe them that. You freely offer that help. Is that grace? Not completely, not fully, because grace goes farther than that. Um, here's what the fullness of grace looks like. It's going to this city and going up to the person who has been mean to you and berating you and screaming at you and lying to you and kicking you and punching you and, and mugging you and they deserve retribution, they deserve your hostility, they, re- they deserve your, 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 your you know, revenge, they deserve litigation. But you see, they're in need. And so you give them the opposite of what they deserve from you. You give them not only enough money to meet their needs, you give them more than enough. That, my friends, is grace. You see the difference? Grace doesn't just give you what you don't deserve, it gives you the opposite of what you deserve. Instead of hate, it gives you love. Instead of retribution, it gives you mercy. Instead of judgment, it gives you forgiveness. Instead of hell, it gives you heaven. Instead of death, it gives you life. And listen, man, you know, it's one thing to receive grace from someone who owes you nothing. But when you receive it from someone who owes you the opposite, man, it shatters you to the core. It's so weird. It's so unexpected. It's so counterintuitive that when you experience it, it it is shocking to the soul. It is shocking to the soul. And that's what John Newton was getting at when he wrote the words, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. God's grace is shocking, and it is personal. Certainly, the apostle Peter understood that. I mean, Peter was the guy who told Jesus, I believe in you, I love you, I'm, never, I'm always going to be here for you. When Jesus got arrested, Peter abandoned him. When Jesus suffered, Peter denied even knowing him. And when Jesus died, Peter took off, didn't come back. But after the resurrection, what happened? Remember? Jesus went to Peter. And he gave him the very opposite of what he deserved. He gave him love, mercy, forgiveness. Jesus went so far as to commission him for leadership. So here's my Reiki summary of that. Grace, grace came to Peter. And it shook him to the core. Uh, he, 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 he welcomed it, he embraced it, and it changed him forever. Grace came to Peter And in Jesus, it has come to you as well.
Have you personally welcomed it and embraced it and believed it? Have you personally embraced him, Jesus? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And look, I realize there are some in the church today who are going to say, hey, man, hearing all this, they're going to say, hey, I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get the whole grace deal. Let's move on to some deeper, you know, more profound theological truths. And if that's what you're thinking, I'm going to just be up straight, I'm straight up with you. I wonder if you really do get it. Because as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing more deeply profound than the grace of God. I mean, when I honestly and, and brutally reflect on my own life, man, and, and, and who I am deep inside and the brokenness and the rebellion and the failures and the sin and all of that, the fact that God gives me the very opposite of what I, of what I deserve from him is humbling. It is transforming. It is shocking to my soul whenever I think about it. Has it shocked you? Does it still shock you? Listen, concerning this salvation of your souls, in Jesus, grace has come. It has come to Peter. It's come to Brian Welch. It's come to John Newton. It's come to me. It has come to you. Believe it. Receive it. And allow the joy of it to flood over your life. Let's pray. Our Father, as, as human beings, we have this, um, I guess we have this overinflated opinion of ourselves and our abilities to be good and to be righteous and to be the kind of person that can earn um, our own salvation, our own way. It's this idea that if I'm good enough, then you owe me. I've proven myself. But I think if we're all honest with who we are when there's no one else around, if we're honest about who we are deep, deep down inside, in the recesses of our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, um, we realize that we can never be that good. That we are broken people. We're imperfect. We fail you, we fail others. We fail ourselves. And there's no way, there's no way that we can, we, can, we can earn our way out of it. But we don't have to, and that is what makes the good news so good. That you have, you have initiated uh, rescue. That Jesus has come to us to do the work we could never do. And he offers us grace through him, we have grace extended. We get not only what we don't deserve, but we get the opposite of what we do deserve. Instead of retribution, forgiveness. Instead of judgment, mercy. Instead of death, we get life. And when we realize that, when we realize that and embrace it and believe it and receive it, 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 shocks, our, it shocks us to the core, to our very soul. And we can't help but bubble over with joy. Father, speak that truth into our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. And I hope you come back next week. We're going to continue on in the study of this letter Peter wrote to the early church.
Uh, so we're, we're through uh, 12, first two, 12 verses of chapter 1, only four and a half chapters to go. We're, we're, we're well on our way. It's going to be good. Okay, so um, I'm hoping you're finding it helpful. I am. And uh, this, this news of God's grace, man, I'll tell you what, it's, it's what gives us joy in all circumstances, and I hope you get it. Um, in the meantime, have a great week. You know, look, if you're, you're, you're having some struggles in life, maybe uh, that's what's true of the early Christians. Our, some of our prayer team people will be down here uh, following the service. They're willing to pray with you and talk with you, but they're here for you, okay? But um, anyway, have a great week. Let me pray for you. And now, Father, as your church leaves uh, this morning, I pray that we would go with a, with a great sense, a deep sense of your love and grace. Because grace has come to us in Jesus. And so may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people today. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.